message from God's Word comes from Psalm 23. I'm pretty much resigned just to doing one verse a week. That's about all I can get through. It's so rich. I'm comforted that some really amazing pastors and men, much more talented than myself, have spent years just on one chapter of the Bible. So I don't feel too bad for not preaching the entire text. But we're going to get through it uh, one week at a time. This is Psalm 23, written by David, a former shepherd. And because he was a shepherd who was diligent, it reveals to us the good shepherd. So when we read this, we're not just reading David's life. We're reading our lives through the, the lens of a sheep to a shepherd. We also see it from the lens of a shepherd to a sheep. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, what beautiful words. We thank you for them. We thank you for all of the scripture, but this particular psalm just resonates in the human heart because we so want to have a good shepherd. We so want to be led well. And indeed, in Christ we are. We pray that these words would penetrate deep into our souls, that we would know that we are well cared for, well shepherded, that your love for us is deep. In Jesus' name, amen. The title is, He Restores My Soul. It's verse 3, He Restores My Soul. It seems like it might not fit that word. That phrase, we're talking about the Lord being a shepherd, taking care of sheep, and yet he says, and he restores my soul. Well, do sheep have souls? Of course, he's talking about us. We have souls, whereas sheep do not, but we are like sheep. But do we need to be restored? I think we know the answer is yes. We often need to be restored. We're easily frightened and discouraged. We really are like Todd's fainting goats. But we're also often tempted to wander. We all, like wandering sheep, need to be restored. Been blessed again with Philip Keller. He talks about his time as a shepherd and as a pastor. And he said one of the things that you really had to watch out for as a shepherd was when a sheep would be cast. 
And I didn't know what that was, but he explains it. To be cast is when a sheep, and I guess this happens to cows too, to, to lots of grazing animals, but to be cast was to be kind of flipped over and your feet are up in the air and you just, there's no way you can right yourself. Maybe you're laying down just next to a, a small depression in the soil and the sheep would roll over and all of a sudden he's in it. And his, his legs are just going crazy. Or her legs are just going crazy. They're tipped on their backs. They can't get up. And this is what it is to be cast. Well, if a cast sheep isn't quickly seen and lifted up and restored to feet, then it would die. And it didn't take long. Sheep are very tender animals. It doesn't take long for these sheep, especially in harsh environments, to die. So when you think of being restored, think of having your feet just up above you and you can't get up. Maybe it's some rut of sin or apathy or some destructive habits and you just feel like you can't set it straight. No matter how hard you kick, you cannot right yourself. You need to be restored. Let's look at the first point. There's four things I want to talk, or three things I want to talk about. But the first is that he brings back the wandering. He brings you back. He restores your soul. To be restored means you've left something. You're restored to that thing. He brings back the wandering sheep. David, of all people in Scripture, he knew what it felt like to be restored. He knew there were times when God had to restore him. He was wounded by his own failures and his own sin. He had destroyed people in his own life. His own recklessness or his own apathy had brought great destruction to his own family. And he could not fix it. He could not restore himself. All through the Psalms you hear him preaching to himself in those issues, in those problems, his life experience. He always says things like this in Psalm 42.11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. You hear how he's he's talking to himself. David talked to himself when he was in turmoil. And he preached truth to his soul. But the plain fact is that sheep are prone to wander. The farther they get from the shepherd, the more bewildered they become. And the more bewildered they become, the less likely it is that they'll find their way back to the shepherd. The shepherd has to go out and get them. They must be restored. In Hebrew, the word restored actually means turned back. I love that. They must be turned back. They must be turned around. We know as Christian people that we still carry some sins of corruption within us. For this reason, we're tempted to depart from our shepherd, not to listen to his voice. And we know that if God withholds his sustaining grace, even for a second, even the most wise, the most learned, the most mature Christian, apart from the grace of God, will quickly wander. And this is true. There's no one who's reached some level of spiritual maturity to where they're just not prone to ever sin, to leave the God they love. 
but the Bible promises that such people will not finally perish. But that doesn't mean that the trial will not be horrible, will not be difficult for those who do choose sin. Well, we see this in the life of David himself. This process is is aptly displayed in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. What happens? Well, David sends his army out, but he doesn't go. He doesn't go with his army. He stays home, and he's on the castle, the roof of his palace, whatever. He's up there, and he's just looking out over his city. And he sees a woman, and she's bathing. He sees a naked woman. He calls her up to his palace. He commits adultery with her. He tries to cover it up, tries to to cover it by bringing the husband back and enticing the husband to sleep with his wife so that the, the whole thing could be said to be the husband's child. But it doesn't work because the man is too righteous and will not be with his wife while the army is out. He acts more the king than David does. So David kills him, puts him to the very front, has everyone run back. He murders him, and then he attempts to cover the whole thing up. What commandments did he break? Almost all of them. The first commandment, he didn't honor God. He chose himself to be God for that moment. Maybe the fifth commandment, certainly the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth. And an argument can even be made, I think, for the third commandment. So in a matter of a week, he falls lower than ever, wandering off into sin and self-indulgence. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. Where you're just like, how did I get here? How did I get to this place where I'm feeling so far from God The sins are piling up over me, and I feel like my feet are in the air, and there's no way that I can fix it. I cannot get myself up. I think it helps to look at the kind of the starting point of all of it. It started pretty innocently. His first misstep was what? It's not doing what he should be doing, not going out with the army. He should have gone out with his army. His whole job as king is to protect Israel from their enemies and to fight. He didn't do it. He got lazy. He started to relax. He should have been with his army, with his men, doing what kings do. Whenever I, whenever you prefer leisure to doing your duty before God, when you prefer relaxing to finding something holy to do, temptation and sin will follow. It's interesting. I think the word is leisure, but before like the 19th century, there was no word leisure. It didn't exist. Everyone was always working. It's a relatively new word in our lexicon, if that's the word I'm thinking of. So look at our culture, the effects of an entire culture thoroughly committed to leisure and entertainment, maximizing every second watching TV, playing games, all of the ridiculous things we do. It's a culture where 
duty and honor are kind of cast aside, your duty to God, well, that's offensive. Why would I have a duty to God? Obeying his commands? What, what is that? What, the word is over me? No. What? To the world, it's ridiculous. The only thing that matters is pleasing yourself every moment of every day. Filling your belly every moment of every day. So I think the lesson we can learn is don't be idle. Be about the work God has given you to do. And when you feel like it's time to rest, think twice about what you're going to do to rest. Because the things that cause rest in your soul are not flipping on the television, are not doing things that the world says is restful. Those things are empty. The only real rest you have is time with the Lord, time with your family in the Lord, in family worship. Those things bring rest. David just lingered on the palace roof. He was probably seeking rest, seeking relaxation. He ended up murdering a man and committing adultery. What a downhill slide and what a benign beginning into one of the most grievous sins ever recorded in the Bible. He needed to be restored. Which is why God sent Nathan the prophet, didn't he? He sent a godly man to David who confronted him in his sin. And David's response was our response. It's what our response should always be whenever we fall. He repented. He knew that he deserved death. And he grieved his sin and he repented. He felt the weight of it. We know this because his response is recorded in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Before I was brought forth, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you hear his heart cry? He knows that God has to do that work. He cannot do it himself. He's cast. He's flipped over. He can't get up. God needed, and David needed God to restore him. In verse 4, it's interesting of that chapter, he says, Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So is he saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba? He didn't sin against Uriah? He didn't sin against the whole people of Israel as king? He didn't sin against his wives? He didn't sin against his children? Against God? Only has he sinned? No, his point is he did sin against all those people. But ultimately, sin is first and foremost an offense to God. 
He's done what is evil in God's sight because God is the author of good and anything opposed to good is evil. And God restored him. He lifted him up. He gave him health and peace. His life is a picture of the Christian life in many ways, especially as seen through the eyes of the Psalms. Psalm 40, he describes God's restoration what this feels like, what it, what it sounds like. It's also a really good U2 song, by the way, 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the muck and the mire, and He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is what restoration feels like. God's lifting you up out of a muck that you cannot get out of. A miry bog, the ESV says. We should remember that when Jesus is on earth, he showed incredible compassion to those who were stuck in sin. There were two kinds of people stuck in sin. There were prideful, arrogant, murderous Hateful enemies of God, the Pharisees, many of them, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. These were not the people that Christ showed great mercy to, great compassion to. He called them children of the devil, brood of vipers. They were so self-righteous and prideful. They hated God and hated his Savior. And they evoked nothing but contempt from our Lord. But those who recognized their sin, who were broken by their sin, who felt trapped by their sin, and came to Christ in humility, the meek and the lowly were met by their meek and lowly Savior. They were always welcomed by God, and He restored them. He touched them. He spoke kindly to them. He encouraged them and remembered them in His prayers. This is His heart for us when we are trapped We feel trapped in sin. We feel like we're cast. We can't get out. We have to be restored. This is His love for us as well. And it's beautiful. If you remember, I'm always amazed when I think of Christ's life and His walk for these three years. He walked from the north to the south again and again. From Galilee to Jerusalem to Galilee to Jerusalem. And everywhere in between. Do you know He was followed by disciples who weren't the twelve, and a majority of these seemed to be women. Many of these women had their lives absolutely changed and restored. Some were prostitutes, some were just broken, and they committed all of their effort and all of their resources to supporting Jesus in his ministry for three and a half years. Amazing. And we've read the story so many times that we probably don't notice, but watch how often people come to him and just throw themselves at his feet in gratitude. Jesus was once in a Pharisee's house and a prostitute came and just fell down at his feet, washed his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her own hair. And this is in a culture where head coverings were expected. So she's, she's basically saying, I'm all yours. She took off her, her covering and her hair flowed down over his feet, and then she anointed his feet with perfume. Why? 
Why this response? Her soul had been restored. Her gratitude flowed over in this beautiful act of love. But men also received great mercy and would would come back in such determined effort to love him well. Do you remember Jesus predicted that Peter would grievously fall away? But he also said that he was praying for Peter, and then he predicted his restoration. He said, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Remember, that's the Hebrew word. I mean, it's Greek, but that's the Hebrew word. When you have turned back, when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. Jesus was praying for Peter's restoration before he ever failed. Think about that. Before you ever fail, Christ is interceding for your restoration. Such is his love. And then he pursues Peter. If you remember, after his resurrection, they have a meal. They're all out fishing and Jesus is on the shore preparing a meal. Primarily to restore Peter to himself for all the work that he has for him. He does this for us in his word. If you have fallen into some besetting sin, you shrink from your duty to God. If you've chosen to embrace the world and its pleasures and you feel the conviction of the Spirit, come back to Him. He has prepared a meal. He's set a table for you. And He's calling you back to Himself to devote yourself to God. He is going to restore you. Pray that God would restore your soul. Because only He can do it. If you're cast, if your feet are up, there's nothing you can do. If the situation is too desperate, if you feel like it's hopeless, He will restore you as a gentle and loving shepherd. When it's regarding sin, we spoke this morning about sin, the need to fight sin. God actually uses sin for His own purposes, to restore us, to show us more clearly our need of God and the gospel. We see Jesus, the spotless lamb, lifted up before our eyes as we read the word. We know that he has paid the price for our wandering and he seeks us out. In his love, he delivers us from ourselves with compassion in his hands. He rejoices over one lost sheep that's brought back. Again, Satan would tell you that he's so angry He'll never accept you. He'll never want you. It's just a lie. He loves his children. He rejoices over one and leaves the 99 to get that one. If you are that one, if you feel like you are that one today, he's seeking to restore you. What a melting it does for our hearts when we feel that we have been restored to a full love for our Savior. What a great desire we have to stay close to our shepherd and the sound of his voice. We're straining to hear him every day, every moment. So turn to God now. Pray for restoration in your life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Like the old hymn, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's all the work of God to restore you to himself. Second point, he leads us in right paths. Not only restores us, he leads us in right paths. Excuse me. 
when you remember that restoring your soul actually means in Hebrew turning back. I mean, it, this psalm seems disjointed in this particular part unless you understand what's, what's being said. He restores you, he turns you back, and then he leads you in paths of righteousness. So you were wandering, and he pulls you back and he leads you well in a right path. We need God's word and his spirit, his comforting spirit, his guiding spirit, if we're to stay near to him at all. And of course, this is what he said he would provide to us. He gives us his spirit. It dwells in us. And because the spirit is in us, the son is in us. And if we've known the son, we've known the father. So for a shepherd to care well for his sheep, I've become kind of a shepherd in my heart. I like to think that I'm going to get some sheep someday, although I probably won't. But the idea of shepherding just sounds so fascinating. It's probably way too much work for me, I think, because cows are so much easier. I'm not, again, a great cattleman, but I just make sure they have grass and water and salt, and sometimes Jerry comes over to help. But otherwise, I mean, I don't have to do a whole lot of work. Sheep, I think, are a lot more work. You have to always keep the flock moving. And if you don't keep the flock moving, what are they going to do? They're kind of like us. They're just going to eat and sit down and then get up and eat and sit down. And they're going to overgraze. That soil becomes rotten, becomes parasitic, and all of a sudden, they're sick. Sheep are going to do the least amount possible to get the most grass. And then they're going to keep eating that grass until it's all gone. So a shepherd has to move the sheep all over, and he's always looking and planning. Where am I going to take them? Where am I going to move them? They're going to have to have water. They're going to need fresh grazing. You've got to leave them. You've got to move them often. So what does a shepherd not do? He doesn't leave his sheep to their own devices. He doesn't just say, okay, sheep, go for it. If you do that, your sheep will not be healthy. That's what I do to my cows, but they seem okay. But sheep are not like that. You can't leave them to themselves. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Solomon says in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We need to be led in good pastures. We need to be led well. And this may not be what we think is the straightest, most direct route. In our human minds, we may think, oh, I, I can see what God's doing. He wants me to do that and then that. His route might be some form of that, but it might be completely different. The shepherd might lead you someplace where you don't expect. Because his goal is not ultimately your happiness on earth. His goal is your holiness, to glorify God on earth. To be used as an instrument in his hands. To bring glory to himself. To strengthen the church. Paths of righteousness means following Jesus wherever he would lead. And God's unique and tender care for each sheep is in play here. He treats us as a flock in one sense. But in another very real sense, he treats us individually as sheep. As sheep that have individual needs. Sheep that need special care at special times. Such is his care for this flock. 
So what is the right path that he leads us in? What is the right way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. He's the path of righteousness. Christ causes us, when we've been restored from sin, to embrace paths of righteousness and ways of godliness and holiness. Our confession says that God will sometimes remove the light of his presence to reveal the the strength of indwelling sin so that you feel alone and you feel like you're, you're hopeless, like you're cast. He sometimes removes the light of his presence for a moment so that when you come back, you never, ever want to do that again. You realize your great need of a Savior, your great need of the gospel every day. Then he sustains us when we're, again, tempted in that way. He holds up his Savior before our eyes, and our love for the Savior just enlivens our hearts. And we're willing to follow our shepherd everywhere. Remember Jesus said in Mark 8, If any man will follow me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Following our shepherd is hard, but it's the only path that brings any contentment or happiness in life. You know, our hearts are restless, like Augustine said, until it finds rest in Christ. So the paths of righteousness are the paths of the righteous one. It's not a path of ease or comfort. It's not going to be easy. And Jesus was very straightforward about the difficulty of following him. The narrow way that very few found. But to be led by Jesus is certainly to be led into an abundant life. In this world we have trouble, but he gives us peace. It's a life devoted to God and to others. It's the life that led 12 12 poor fishermen and publicans and sinners into the biggest revival the world has ever seen. To change the entire world by the power of their testimony about Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. The paths of righteousness are found in God's Word. They're illuminated by the Holy Spirit in your hearts. Show you your Savior. And He brings your heart to a place of love for Himself. And He sanctifies you and causes you to want more. Devote yourself to Christ as revealed in His Word. And devour His Word as food. Finally, He says, this is the third point, He does all this for His own sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Isn't that interesting? That David would say that. We've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. But let that sink in. It's for his name's sake. When you read this phrase in the Bible, it should shatter all of your pride. It's not for you, of course. Good Presbyterians, we know this. His goodness to us is only of his own grace. It's only for his own glory. Our names are worthless. Our names are filthy. His name is holy. And it's for his name's sake. That he restores our souls and leads us in righteous paths. Our merit is non-existent. What he does for us is does he does monergistically. In other words, he does it all by himself. All through the scriptures you see this. Isaiah 43.25 I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Isaiah 48.9-11 For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. 
Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in a furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 36, talking about our regeneration, the giving us of a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Ezekiel says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. It's for his sake that we are brought into fellowship. I'm going to close with these two quotes. William Plumer, the old Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian theologian, he wrote of this psalm, That which moves God to save his people is found in him and not in them. This should be known and remembered if God found in himself cause for beginning our salvation. If he never changes, then shall he find in himself cause for crowning with glory the world of salvation begun in us, if he loved and pitied us when enemies, much more will he love and save us when friends. John Calvin writes, Certainly his choosing us to be his sheep and performing towards us all the good offices of a shepherd is a blessing which proceeds entirely from his free and sovereign goodness. So whatever we are, whatever restoring has happened to us whatever path of righteousness we happen to be on at present it's only for god's name's sake it's only for his glory that we're in christ this is called grace it's unmerited favor not because of anything we've done because we are prone to wander in and of ourselves let us pray our father and our god we thank you that you have restored us to yourself that you save us that you keep us that you have made us yours, that you will never, ever leave us. You will never forsake us. Even when we're cast, when we're flipped up, when there's no way possible that we can get out of the situation that we've created for ourselves because of sin or someone else's sin or just our lack of effort or our apathy toward you or not pursuing you in your word or prayer daily, not worshiping with our families, these things that sustain us throughout each day. Lord, you can restore us to yourself. And for your name's sake, we pray that you would do so. You would set our feet on solid rock, paths of righteousness, that you be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.